This is the Short-Term Parking Podcast, and I'm Jack Preback, and we are all just passing through, or as Tashiji Munoz put it, just visiting this planet, and that was sort of the original thought behind the title of this podcast, Short-Term Parking, and if you've been Playing along with me, this is episode 10 now. You will notice that that was new music at the front there. And I'll get into that a little bit more later on. Many years ago now, I was uh, stopping into my local quick shop, actually. The store was a neighborhood store. And it was, uh, it, it predated probably when people started using the term quick shop. But it was a little uh, place that uh, mostly the locals went to to get beer and cigarettes. This was in uh, the southwest Missouri Ozarks on the picturesque Table Rock Lake. And this was an area that I lived in for many years. Anyway, I was uh, stopping by one day to get a pack of cigarettes. And I heard a voice from the back of the store saying, Hard times are coming. Gonna be hard times. Gonna be hard times are coming. And as I was standing up at the counter, this uh, guy came up from the back of the store and it turns out it was a, a man that was a friend of mine. A plumber. I'm going to digress here just a second. I've done a lot of uh, study into Eastern philosophy and religion. And I'm going to say, uh, I usually don't give advice, but if one is seeking true peace of mind, you can't do much better than befriending a good plumber and a good mechanic as well. But as I say, that's beside the point. So this plumber was uh, predicting hard times. And sure enough, not long after that, maybe a month or two later, the nation got hit with the housing crisis, the bailout of the big banks, the recession of 08. So the plumber may have uh, foreshadowed the hard times a little bit. Looking around now, I wonder if he was talking about in the next couple of months or if he was looking further into the future. Or perhaps it was just a coincidence. I saw a quote from the great Steve Earle, great songwriter Steve Earle, has the ability that few people have the ability to 
write a song that sounds like it could have been written yesterday or tomorrow or a hundred years ago. Sometimes you hear a Steve Earle song and you think, that's so familiar, that must have been around forever. And with a quote, it's from an interview he gave a few years ago, he said, the singer-songwriter has always played music that was stylistically rooted in the 30s and the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. But the fact of the matter is that none of us remember the Depression firsthand. And certainly the uh, tradition of the troubadour wandering from town to town, writing and singing songs about life or observation goes back way before that but the singer-songwriters Steve is talking about here are a newer breed than uh, the medieval obviously somebody like Woody Guthrie would come to mind and the lineage through Bob Dylan and the singer-songwriters of the 70s Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, even through Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, and the like. And the idea is that there is a common thread in that going back, the songs were born of hard times. The Great Depression is the benchmark that we use for hard times. My parents were both born in 1930. And so, like Steve, I don't know the Great Depression firsthand. But both of my parents lived through it. And as a kid, I remember they would sometimes bring up how uh, tough things were in general, but I don't recall them really complaining or going into detail about how difficult it was. My father was born in Milwaukee and my mother was born in San Francisco. And they were not victims of the Dust Bowl and I remember later on when I was reading The Grapes of Wrath I would pick their brains a little bit for details and figuring, I would envision in my mind that that must have been the type of scene they lived through. And I think a lot of us conjure up images of that particular book when we hear the, the phrase, the Great Depression. But of course, you know, that's only a part of what went on and my parents certainly had their own hardships and sorrows my mother at eight years old her father dying with literally 13 cents in his pocket and being one of three children and her mom now a single mother had to rely on wealthy relatives to get by and my dad who around the same age lost a little brother to scarlet fever 
and their family house was quarantined and actually had the scarlet letter on the door. My dad's father worked for J.C. Penney selling furniture and there wasn't a whole lot of people buying furniture but there were a few and they scraped by. They didn't go hungry and like so many other people I know that were born during that era they used the words we were poor and didn't know it and I actually do know a couple a few people that were Dust Bowl Okies that made their way out to California and uh, picked fruit and lived in the itinerant camps. And they have similar sentiments. They were poor. They didn't realize it. But they were just kids and they made their way. The families made their way. And I think that when somebody is living through hard times it is not so in the face evident as a John Steinbeck fictional novel when people are going through it they're just getting by and maybe later they'll look back and reflect and realize how hard the times actually were. And I think we are probably going through that right now. It's hard to know the scope of the situation when it is around you. I do recall both my parents talking about entertainment during those years being focused on escapism. A lot of, uh, a lot of the popular culture, the movies, the music were designed to mentally take you out of the situation for a brief period of time. I think it's difficult to compare, though, something like a, uh, a Busby Berkeley musical to the entertainment that is available today. And much of it, of course, is geared towards escapism, but in a far more intense way. I'm thinking particularly of uh, video games and the big production movies with all the CGI. The fantasy worlds are easy to enter into these days, and I think that a lot of people are doing just that. They're binge-watching and binge-gaming. But, like in any era, a lot of the art that is of substance is under the radar. Not part of the popular culture, not promoted. Not the stuff you're inundated with on a regular daily basis. And not the art by committee, corporate, media-driven, huge projects. When I was a, a young man, a young musician, the recording studio was hallowed ground. Once in a while, you would meet 
a musician that had been to the recording studio that had actually recorded something and even once in a great while you would find somebody who actually recorded something that was released but there were people who went their whole lives playing music playing music for a living even that never entered a recording studio and now that recording studio is greatly accessible takes a little bit of money but not as much as it would formerly cost to uh, do one decent recording session one can enter into the recording process for a pittance and a lot of times people don't think of it, but, you know, the recording of music, making a document, a physical, or now, a digital document, but even making a document of music is a, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's really new. Only little more than a century old. But there's a, a curious thing that has happened along the way since there has been recorded music a few years after recorded music actually existed there were people that were looking back and rediscovering particular performances and artists there was a uh, great uh, amount of activity in the 50s and 60s around rediscovered folk artists and blues artists that had recorded things during the 20s and 30s that were still alive and people found them. People sought them out and some of them even had uh, careers, second careers or careers, uh, first careers. They'd never had an actual career in the first place, but they had recorded and released, documented some music, some music back in the day. And it still goes on. Uh, we just recently had a uh, uh, news that a new book by a stepsister of Robert Johnson is coming out. and a, a, a new picture of Robert Johnson, where there's only a couple previous to have been known to exist. And that was one of the big things when I was young, reading about Robert Johnson. There were were not even any pictures of him. And there are examples of later musicians from uh, the 70s that have been rediscovered recently. There are a couple of movies, uh, documentaries you can look for. One's called Sugar Man about an artist named Rodriguez. And there's another one about the hard rock heavy metal band called Death. These were artists that were researched and found out about and brought to the public eye years and years after they first produced their work. And this has, you know, been a tradition in visual arts, painting, sculpture. You always uh, hear about artists that are famous now that... uh, were starving artists when they were alive. They never made any money while they were alive. It's a newer phenomenon, of course, with musicians because 
They weren't uh, documenting the performances, like I said, until just a little over a century ago. And the fact is, there is probably a lot of great artistic efforts that remain undiscovered from those same periods. Those years gone by, there's still stuff that could be found, could be sought out. And I have to tell you, if there are any future generations that are interested in this sort of endeavor, they're going to have mountains of documents to sort through. There is a huge amount of recorded music that goes unlistened to, unheard. And like those troubadours, the singer-songwriters, there are new types, new forms. The singer-songwriter, instead of performing songs that already existed, that were popular, instead of going that route, they made up their own repertoire. Borrowing here and there, but... They were a self-contained unit. They wrote and sang and played their own product. But if they were to record, they would have to go to an outside party. And if they were actually signed to a record label and promoted, that was done by other people. And now we have the performer, composer, producer, recording engineer, promoter, and publicist all in one. So beyond the singer-songwriter, the singer-songwriter, recordist, huckster, generation, generations now, got to wear a lot of hats if you want to get noticed. And most of them never get noticed. Most of them never get played. And whenever they take any step in the direction of releasing music, they are approached by a multitude of scammers and con men that are going to help them promote their music, help them build a music career just send me x amount of dollars and i'll help you out son i'll get you a hundred thousand spins on spotify for x amount of dollars i'll review your song and put the review up on my website that is viewed by millions of people and i'm a big influence in the music industry and all this is just bogus and the vast majority of people that are producing musical output are hip to those scams and they don't take part in them but they still exist it's a numbers game like the Nigerian email scams 
But there are a huge amount of people that are producing music. And they know that even though they would love to be noticed and known for it, they're probably not. And right now, they're producing this music during hard times. During hard times. And there's probably going to be a lot of great music come out of these hard times. Could be something new and exciting, new and fresh. And you know, the music that comes from hard times doesn't necessarily have to be about hard times. It's a byproduct. But because of that, sometimes there's a little something else behind it that gives it some impact. One of the things that uh, people that are just listeners that aren't actually making music don't know is that if you want to have music released on Spotify, iTunes, any of the streaming outlets, which are the outlets now for listening to music, if you want to get music up on those outlets, you have to pay a middleman. You have to pay a one-time or a yearly fee to a digital distributor. And this is just a, for instance, anecdotal, but the one that I use, the digital distributor that I use, last October had a three or four day turnaround on when I delivered them the music and they in turn distributed it to the streaming services. Right now, that's at three to four weeks. Part of that is because they're probably a little short staffed, but the larger part is there is a ton of people releasing music, especially now that a lot of people have more time on their hands. They are creating more music. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of all of this. You'll have to look a little deeper. You'll have to dig a little bit, but there's going to be some interesting and substantial works of art under the surface. And I guess now's as good as any time to tell you that I have a new album that I'm releasing today as well. It is called Trespass. And you will be able to find it at Bandcamp. Just look up Jack Prebeck, P-R-I-B-E-K. And it will be available on streaming services such as Spotify, iTunes, and all the rest in the coming days. And as I mentioned before, this is the 10th episode now of the Short-Term Parking Podcast. And the tradition has been, 
in the nine previous ones that I uh, end the thing with a bit of music. And so today, I am going to leave you with a new cut off this new record. The album is called Trespass. This song is called A Bison Shows No Remorse. People sometimes ask me where I come up with the titles for these songs. And very simply, you have to call them something. And it could be anything that can trigger in your mind that can bring forth what the particular title should be. This song reminded me of a time that I was working in a traveling band with a band leader who was a member of the Ogallala Sioux tribe. And he was originally from the Pine Ridge Reservation. And before he was a full-time band leader, he was a park ranger at the Badlands National Park. And there was a, a situation that came up where we were not booked to play for a few days. And we were in that area and he took us out to the park and he still had his uh, ranger credentials, whatever they were. And he had access to parts of the park that regular civilians did not have access to. And he took us into the deepest depths of the place and we came upon a herd of bison. We were in a pickup truck and they were blocking the path, a little uh, dirt road that went through this area and they, they were in no hurry to let us pass. And one of them, I was in the passenger seat of this truck and one of them came right up to the window and his breath, he was so close, his breath was fogging up the window. This was a cold, gray day, and it was snowing a little bit. And he was within arm's reach. And he had a look on his face that was just stoic. And at the time, I remarked, it reminds me of one of those wanted posters or mugshots they show on TV of a criminal who shows no remorse. And that was many, many years ago, but it stuck with me, and that is where the title of the song came from, A Bison Shows No Remorse. Once again, I'm Jack Preback. This is the Short-Term Parking Podcast, episode number 10. And thank you, as always, for tuning in, the few of you that have. And if you have made it this far, I hope you'll stick around a couple more minutes to hear the music, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks.